Decade is Tops for Pops. Hi, welcome to Which Decade is Tops for Pops, Season 2, Episode 6. I am joined, as always, by Nick Parkhouse. Hello. Nick has had to move rooms for this episode due to unforeseen broadband problems. But in the same place as he always is, it's DJ Trev. Hi, Trev. Hello. Right. Magic Randomizer this time has given us a year suffix of zero and a chart position of three. So we'll be looking at records that were at number three in the charts on June the 27th, 1960, 1970, all the way through to 2010. Playlists, YouTube playlist, tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 26Y. Spotify, same thing, but 26S for Spotify. Extra tracks and bonus bits, it's which decade 26 Let's crack straight on with the 60s. This is Handyman by Jimmy Jones. First of two top tens for Jimmy Jones, it peaked at this position of number three. His next hit, Good Timing, that was already climbing the charts this very week, and it eventually peaked at number one on the 13th of July, and it stayed there for three weeks. Jimmy Jones then had three more very minor hits, and they took him through to April 1961. Handyman was co-written in 1955 by Jimmy Jones and two others, and it was first recorded in 1956 by the Sparks of Rhythm. Jimmy Jones had been a member of the group when he wrote the song, but the Sparks of Rhythm recorded it after he left the group, and they removed his name from the songwriting credits. However, it was then reclaimed, substantially reworked, and substantially rewritten for Jimmy Jones' own solo version, and he did that in collaboration with Otis Blackwell. Otis Blackwell had uh, major songwriting chops. He gave us Great Balls of Fire for Jerry Lee Lewis, All Shook Up for Elvis Presley, and Fever for Peggy Lee. Covers, there was a very similar sounding cover of Handyman by Del Shannon that got to number 36 in 1964. And another very different sounding cover by James Taylor. That was a big international hit in 1977, but it wasn't a hit in the UK. Somewhere in the world, there is a self-employed guy called James. His friends call him Jimmy Jones, who does odd jobs, plastering, floor fitting, that kind of thing. And he's scratching his head as to why when people search for him online, his handyman business gets six million other hits, but nothing about that. But that's not the type of handy that this song is talking about at all. After all, we all know uh, that a handy is, in fact, a South Asian aromatic curry dish originating in northern India using slow cooking and plenty of yogurt. Jimmy's later hit, Chicken Vindaloo Man, was actually a much spicier affair than this, but this is still a nice enough tune. I do think that when they accused Culture Club of plagiarising this song for Karma Chameleon, they were reaching even more than I was with the curry reference. But I honestly can't think of any other meanings for the word handy. I mean, what does it rhyme with? Randy, handy, shandy, nothing. This is one of those 50s hangover tunes, really, that we've had a few times in the 60s, and that's kind of what happens when one decade rolls over to the next. But... Like a brave actor doing his own stunts, Jimmy Jones does his own whistling, which I think really gives this extra points before we even get into it. He is a jack of all trades then, or handyman, if you will. And I think this is a nice bit of summertime, sunshiny pop. I couldn't really get 
massively into it because I don't think that there's a massive amount to get into. And that's possibly because, you know, back then, the vast majority of pop songs were two and a half minutes. They just go in and go out. Uh, I'm led to believe that most of them were recorded in one take. The fact that he does his own whistling on this makes me think this, this wasn't one of those recorded in one take. But it's a jolly old song and it's just a nice speedy bit of pop fun. I'm actually tell you a bit about the whistling, um, whether it was one take or not. The only reason there's whistling on the record is because they booked a flute player and the flute player didn't turn up at the session. So it's like, come on then, Jimmy, whistle the melody. That's why I got whistling. Uh, the uh, Culture Club plagiarism thing, I've got a quote here from Boy George because he was asked about it and he said... I might have heard it once, but it certainly wasn't something I sat down and said, yeah, I want to copy this. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? So the first time you listen to this, you put it on and you get to the end of it. It's 1 minute 58, which, you know, is a four-star running time for a pop song, let's be honest. You'll think, God almighty, that's just one of those late 50s, do-wobby-woppy, in one ear, out the other things. And then I listened to it a bit closer and then listened to the lyrics. And then I realised that Kevin Feige, who's the president of Marvel Studios, was born in 1972. So when the James Taylor cover version of this song, Andy Man, came out, it had been about five or six. So one of his formative memories would have been of this superhero, Handy Man, who is not Iron Man, he's not Batman, he's not Spider-Man. But what he does is he fixes broken hearts, right? He goes round towns and cities finds people who are heartbroken and he sorts them out. As he says in his song, if your broken hearts need repair, I am the man to see. And do you know what? A bit like Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man's tired, spends his all his nights superheroes. Handyman is the same. Handyman is busy 24 hours a day, he says in his song, fixing broken hearts all across America. Now, how he fixes them, we don't know. We don't know whether he was bitten by a radioactive heart or how he got his handy powers. But I think that what you're seeing is the seedlings of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a young Kevin Feige listening to James Taylor's late 70s lounge version of Handyman and seeing a hero, seeing somebody who is doing good selflessly. And I think maybe that's where all of the Marvel films have come from, from that basic idea. And I can't really say any more than it than that. As a song, it is fine. Quite like the James Taylor version, in a sort of loungy, God, it sounds nothing like the original kind of way. But it is a really arrogant song about a bloke who really fancies himself as a fix your broken hearts, ladies and men, presumably. Doesn't say, doesn't specify. And he's a modern day hero of our time and we should applaud him. So this is actually under two minutes. Clock's in under two minutes then. I thought it was an epic at two and a half minutes um but there isn't actually that much for us to talk about so we've both had to go off on quite random asides what is mike going to talk about <laughs> it could be anything the circumference of the earth work that in you know what i'm actually going to talk about handyman a record by jimmy jones this is actually the second time that handyman by jimmy jones has come up on which decade is tops of pops because way back in distant years gone by, which decade is Tarts of Pops used to be a blog-based venture. And in 2010, Handyman by Jimmy Jones came up in that year's which decade is Tarts of Pops. Used to do them once a year, not once a fortnight. Nobody liked it much. 
back in 2010. It finished fifth out of six. Only person who liked it at all and actually placed it first was our celebrity leader, Bob Stanley out of St. Etienne. He thought it was fantastic and, you know, his words counts for something. So Bob Stanley likes it. Can't be all bad. That said, I definitely prefer the original version, The Sparks of Rhythm from 1956. It is almost a completely different song, a different key, major rather minor or minor rather major, can't remember which. There's only a few lyrical fragments survive in the Jimmy Jones version. Also, like Nick, I really like that 1977 James Taylor version, and I do remember it. They must have been played on the radio quite a lot at the time. As for the Jimmy Jones version, catchy little dizzy. Arrangement's pretty nifty. There's a decent guitar break, but there are two problems with it for me. First problem is Jimmy Jones's voice. Sounds like Sam Cooke has been fed through a cheese grater. Those higher falsetto lines in particular, they just sound quite ugly and jarring. Second problem is all that incessant bloody whistling. Not big into whistling. Unless you're Otis Redding doing Talk of the Bay, I will allow that. Maybe he was inspired by Handyman, but was wise enough to tone it down a bit. Now, I also have problems with the TV performance clip that I am putting on the Extra Tracks playlist. This reveals that Jimmy Jones well, is decidedly eccentric fellow, not only with his vocals, which are eccentric enough as it is, but also with what I suppose we are obliged to call his dancing. I wonder whether Freddie Garrity of Freddie and the Dreamers was taking notes because there's quite a bit of skipping around in a sort of frolicky, frivolous sort of way. It all looks a bit overly ingratiating. and I'm almost getting minstrel show vibes from it, especially when the camera pans to the studio audience, all white, obviously, all sullen and poker-faced, every last one of them chewing gum. So to this audience, if they didn't look too closely into the lyrics of the song, Jimmy Jones singing, I'm your handyman, would seem entirely in accord with their lived-in experience, as one suspects that the only black people most of them met were in the service sectors. But I would submit that is actually not what Jimmy Jones is singing about at all. And one of the song's saving graces, I think, is it does actually subvert that initial impression of him as a happily subservient service provider. Because I think the service that he's actually offering as a 24-hour on-call man of broken hearts... I think his method of fixing these broken hearts doesn't have a lot to do with counselling or indeed with supernatural powers. I think it's a more hands-on approach. Shall we say a more handsy approach? I think he's got a little shed, his tool shed. So just one service visit to his 24-hour repair shop and you'll walk away a new woman. This is a decidedly unorthodox treatment to be offering to the newly dumped daughters of America. It's a bit off in some respects, but the song's meant to be taken very lightly. So I think it just about escapes being cancelled, even by today's standards. I can see why Jimmy Jones's success didn't last too much longer. Good timing, that was okay. People of my age will remember it as the jingle on an advert for Timex watches. It went Timex, ticker, 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 ticker. Timex. Those younger will have no idea about that. But by the time we get to the follow-up, the markedly less successful I Just Go For You 
those vocal entrances, they've jumped the shark and they are almost comically ridiculous. Jimmy Jones has just turned into a self-parody by that stage. Who do you think would play Handyman? Like Regé out of Bridgerton, you reckon, or uh, Ryan Gosling? Uh, oh, I've, I know who would play Handyman. I mean, he'd be quite old for the role, but I think it would be a really great sort of comeback. The guy who was Jacko, who was a Handyman, and like then he's obviously in later life. So it's a sequel to Jacko, and he's been bitten by a radioactive hammer. Because I don't know about you, Nick, but I'm not a particularly handyman. My dad would be the handyman. My dad comes around and goes, how's the car running? And I'm like, running. You know what I mean? So it would need to be someone of an older generation because they can still get things done. Mike, you're slightly older than us. Are you a bit handy? I'm dyspraxic, Trev. So I can be handy but only in a very limited private sphere. Then I can be good with my hands. I know. Nigel Havers. No, Nigel Havers is the Alfred to Handyman. So he's the butler and the actor who played Jacko, who you'll possibly remember from the, was it Daz adverts? He did some sort of household cleaner adverts later on. Anyway, look up Jacko. You'll know who I mean. But the comment I would like to go back to is Mike describing some skipping as frivolous. Can you give me some examples of skipping that isn't frivolous, that is much more serious? Olympic skipping. Yeah. <laughs> Has there ever been Olympic skipping? That was deadly serious. Has there ever been Olympic skipping? Oh, I don't know. Can I just say, um, I haven't given you my candidate for Handyman. My candidate for Handyman is Enrique Iglesias. He'd jump at it. Tonight I'm fixing you. Oh. It, wouldn't even, it wouldn't be fixing you. It wouldn't be that intelligent, would it? It'd be tonight I'm screwing you. Because I'm a handy... Oh, clever. How have you managed to do that, Enrique? Tonight I'm screwing you back to the wall. (laughs) Tonight I'm drilling you. I don't know why Enrique suddenly came from Bolton there, but... um... Right, your hour's up. Next. The dancing that you described in the video, I did think when I was watching, it looks like he's swimming. He's doing the butterfly. You can't see Nick doing this, but that's a good approximation of um, Jimmy Jones' kind of butterfly. And there's a few twirls as well. I like the dancing. The skippy bits look like early jump style, which is a type of rave dancing. And so I was on, I was fully on board with the dancing. I thought it was great. And I was definitely much more on board than the studio audience were because you are absolutely right. It's a treat to watch the cutaways to the studio audience. It is weird. Yeah. Compare and contrast with the Beatles a couple of years later. Let's move on to... This is free with All Right Now. First of four top 20 hits free between 1970 and 1973. It was the highest charting hit, peaked at number two. It charted again in 1973, the year they split up, and that time around it peaked at 15. Then a longer version got to number 11 in 1978. That was the lead track on an EP. There was another re-release in 1982. That got to 57. And then finally, in 1991... Got all the way back up to number eight, thanks to a remix by Bob Clearmountain. Cover versions, none other than Pepsi and Shirley, if you can believe it. They covered all right. Now, it got to number 50 in 1987. And there was another cover version by a girl band called Lemonescent. Number 37, 2004. I listened to that Pepsi and Shirley version, just for reference. They called their album All Right Now. It's absolutely horrendous. It keeps the guitar 
and then just replaces the vocal with Pepsi and Shirley. I couldn't get all the way to the end. So, again, we're coming back to the how did you arrive at a song. Now, I think I'm pretty sure my dad liked Free, so I imagine I must have heard this as a child. But, of course, it was a hit when I was, what, 16, 17? I think it was in a Wrigley's Spearmint Gum advert. It was that gum advert where a bloke met a girl on a bus and they shared their gum. And he got off the bus at the end and she got off the bus and they put their gum wrappers together. Yeah, Yeah, anyway, so that's why it was a hit. It's got to be a great song for it to have been a hit multiple times, I think. If you think about stuff like Unchained Melody has been a hit a gazillion times and stuff. They're hits because they're great records. Again, it's one of those songs you've only got to hear the first chord, haven't you? And you know exactly what it is. And I bet almost everybody knows exactly what it is just from hearing that first note. I read an interview with them. that They said that they played a gig at the Students' Union at Durham University. 2,000 capacity. They got there and they said there was about 30 people there and it was rubbish. And they came off the stage and they could hear. They said they could hear the sound of their feet as they traipsed off the stage. And they were just like, right, we need something to G the crowd up. And they literally went off stage, went to the dressing room and wrote all right now. They reckon it took them 15 minutes. They just started the lyrics, came up with a riff, wrote it. And obviously it became probably what you'd call one of the rock anthems of the 70s, certainly by a British band, I think. Paul Rogers got a great voice, one of the absolute great rock voices of that generation, I would say. I'm never quite sure whether I like it. I, I think I do like it. It came on the other day when I played it and I thought, I know all the words to this. How is that even possible? When, you know, on any given day, I can't remember what I'm supposed to be doing at work, but I do know all the words to all right now and I'm not quite sure. So then I started listening to a bit of Free. I actually think I like Wishing Well more than this. I think a little bit. It's a bit more interesting, I think. And then I got quite fed up with it after about half an hour. I was like, right, that's enough of that now. I think I've had me fill of Free for the time being. But, you know, Solid gold, absolute rock classic of ever. And I'd be surprised if it doesn't do magnificently well. Having relatively recently become a dad, I've got a great interest in what is classified as dad rock. So, for example, I'm a dad. I like Slipknot and American Head Charge. And there is a school of thinking that dad rock is literally just that, that the goalposts move and basically whatever... 20 year old rock music is is dad rock so if that's the case then this would you'd have to call it driving rock or or air guitar now i can confirm that this is all of those things because i've got three different driving rock albums i've got two air guitar albums and i've got an entire folder of classic dad rock anthems and this tune is on all of them this is a windows down stereo loud hair receding weight relentlessly increasing tune for car trips to flamingo land and sliding around on your knees in a sports hall playing a tennis racket i mean rock music is actually quite a snobby scene but then you get things like this and i mean if anyone is too cool to like this then they're not really cool at all anyway but this is one of those tunes that i mean it i i absolutely resonate with what nick was saying Do you even like this song? It's so big and well-known and everywhere that, you know, you're going, actually, do I like it? Or do I like the feeling that it generates? You know, this comes on in a bar and if you're three or four beers in, it's fist in the air, sing along. And 
what an amazing thing for a song to do to actually go past whether or not you like it and become something else, the equivalent of a meme or something. I would put this in an across-the-decade dad rock top 10 easily with like Rainbow Since You've Been Gone, Bon Jovi Living on a Prayer, Primal Screen Rocks, Nickelback How You Remind Me, The Darkness I Believe in, I think all of those types of tunes that do go beyond. It's, it's, it sounds like a crazy thing to say, but yeah, it's beyond do you like it to just, yeah, that comes on. And don't get me wrong, you know, any of those tunes that I've just mentioned, someone in the room is going to go, oh, not this. You know, it's dead easy to hate on bands like Nickelback and stuff like that. But most people who aren't knobheads are just going to go, yeah, party tune. It's not about whether or not you particularly love it. It's not about artistry or anything like that. It's just gone beyond that. Put this on, turn up the volume, wind down the roof on your Citroen Saxo, make sure that you're wearing twice as much denim as you were, and just have at it. To say this came out so early in the 70s, I do think this is a very 70s sounding song. I wouldn't have thought, had I not known, that this was start of the decade stuff. But yeah, I just think this is a great tune. And I think I'm going to try and put on my best uh, Radio 2 DJ voice and say, play it loud. (laughs) I'm going to use the benefit of my comparative age to give you a bit of social history on All Right Now, because I was there, man. So, yeah. All Right Now was absolutely inescapable right through the 1970s, even into the 1980s. And when you look at all those re-releases that got it back into the charts every few years, that's all the evidence you need for that. So uh, dances in the 1970s. You typically start with all the girls getting up to do a polite little shimmy to something pretty like You To Me Are Everything by The Real Thing or I Love To Love by Tina Charles and the lads all stood against the walls awkwardly clutching their beers because none of them actually knew how to dance. Then a bit later on, the DJ would put on All Right Now and all the lads would move en masse onto the dance floor so they could all clump around to it in a huddle, trying to move like Jagger, but not really. Getting there, you always... Always got All Right Now at 70s discos. And you also always got Hi-Ho Silver Lining by Jeff Beck uh, for much the same reason. In fact, the spring 1978 re-release All Right Now, that actually made the Record Mirror national disco charts for a couple of months. Right, even in my first year at university, this was 1980 going into 1981, you still always got All Right Now and Hi-Ho Silver Lining at student discos and it's the same awkward groups of lads, no sense of fashion, minimal sexual experience, bum fluff moustaches, accidental sort of proto-mullets because they still didn't quite dare to cut the hair short in case people thought they might be into synthesizers. They would all still take to the floor and start clumping around to All Right Now and oh my God, how we sneered at them. I think In my case, I sneered at them because a year earlier, I too had bad hair. Think Fergal Sharkey and the early undertones. I had no dress sense and minimal sexual experience. So I think I felt the need to establish my distance by punching down now that I'd had a peacock-style fashion makeover. Our little group of friends, our favourite satirical term when talking about All Right Now, or Freebird by Leonard Skinnerd, or Status Quo's Caroline was classic track. As in, oh, Freebird, oh, that's a classic track. And I think another reason why we steered at the classic tracks 
was because we were sick to the back teeth of them. We were frustrated that there were some people our age who were still refusing to let go of them and actually acknowledge that this was actually the 1980s and loads of exciting and innovative music was actually being made. I only started re-evaluating All Right Now a few years ago, and I think it was when I stumbled across this brilliant YouTube mashup. It puts Paul Rogers' vocals over the backing track of We Are Family by Sister Sledge, and the two songs fit together perfectly. And hearing Paul Rogers' vocals in isolation, that really brought home to me what a soulful singer Free had all along. I downloaded the mashup, played it out from time to time, really worked on the dance floor. Then that led to me performing the mashup in cabaret at the community arts charity where I used to volunteer. I used to organise cabaret shows twice a year. It was a sort of an ensemble piece. We changed the lyrics so they were all about someone who was desperate for a pee. I forget the exact context now. But that, performing it in cabaret, that's what cemented my love for the song. It brought me back to the original. And you know what? It really is a classic track. I feel like that was Mike's autobiography, chapters 17 and 18 there. <laughs> Coming out in store my installment, yeah. It is almost a, a bright side. You know, what you're saying about, mm. you know, at the time or sort of in the years after, there's been that recently with Brightside, particularly, you know, the Brightside paradox we talk about quite a lot. Mm. You get to a point where tunes become so big that people don't like them, even though they are quite good. That's the flip side of that. You know, oh God, it's everywhere. Yeah, but is it okay? No, I'm just sick of hearing it. It's what it represents. It's the fact that, oh God, can't people find some interesting new music? Could they not do a bit of work and find something new to listen to? They're just lazily going back to a song that we all know already. So that, that's tied into the reaction as well. That's right where we are now with Brightside. There's not many nights go by without someone requesting you for Brightside. I think it's an absolutely wonderful song, but I really have to remind myself because I'm out oh, for Christ's sake. Are you joking, Mr. Brightside? There's people now who specifically don't want to hear Mr. Brightside because they hear it too much. And I can completely understand it because, Christ, you know, if you're 28, you'd be like, why are we listening to this still? If you're 21, why the hell are we still listening to Brightside? ABBA had that. We mentioned them earlier. You know, when that period where ABBA weren't cool again, people are so sick of ABBA, just default into it. And I wonder, you know, at the moment with ABBA, are we going to get back to there in a couple of years' time? Because it's constant, non-stop ABBA bangers. But yeah, now that we're so far down the line from all right now, it's classic rock, isn't it? It's found its level. If you discovered tomorrow that it was Jeremy Clarkson's favourite song of all time, you'd just go, yep. Standard, yeah. Well, have I mentioned this before on the podcast? I don't think I have. I was in the same class as Jeremy Clarkson in 1973 when All Right Now, the first re-release, was in the charts. I don't remember Jeremy Clarkson having anything to say about it at all. And he had a lot to say on most things. I can tell you that. How, right. How? Are we, here we are, three years into this podcast, and you've never mentioned that you went to school with Jeremy Clarkson. I mean, I know he's not like a touchstone. We're not always going, so what would <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson think? Oh, yeah. Christ, but even so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was a bit of a child prodigy, um, and I got bumped up. So um, there were about three years I was in the same classes, lads that were all two years older than me. And Jeremy Clarkson was one of them. His parents were friends with my parents. They used to come around for dinner, all that sort of thing. He was always obsessed with cars. 
but he's changed in pretty much every other way. Oh, he had a great sense of humour. He was the class wit, um, really good at kind of in-jokes that you enjoyed buying into. But he was a sensitive boy. He was artistic, cried quite easily, did quite a lot of amdram in Doncaster. My theory is that he went away to boarding school, as I did, and I think he was bullied at boarding school, and I think he developed that tough persona to get around it, and he came out of boarding school, and he was the Jeremy Clarkson that we now know. Was he wearing the copious amounts of denim that you naturally associate with free or right now? He was wearing school uniform, Trev. Oh, right, yeah. But did he not get it tailored in denim? Nah. Right, let's bring on... This is Back Together Again by Roberta Black and Donny Hathaway. It was the third and last chart entry for Roberta and Donny as a duo. It followed Where Is Love in 1972 and The Closer I Get To You in 1978. It was by far away that it peaked at this position of number three. It was written by Reggie Lucas, who later produced most of Madonna's debut album, and he wrote Borderline for her, and by James M. Toomey, who's best known for his 1983 R&B hit, Juicy Fruit, later sampled by Biggie Smalls for Juicy. This duo also co-wrote and co-produced Never Knew Love Like This Before for Stephanie Mills, which won them a Grammy Award. As a solo artist, Roberta Flack, had two big hits that was in the UK. That was the first time I ever saw your face in 1972 and Killing Me Softly with his song in 1973. But her biggest hit was Tonight I Celebrate My Love, a duet with Peebo Bryson that reached number two in 1983. As for Donny Hathaway, he had some minor hits in the USA, but none solo in the UK. Re-release of Back Together Again in 1984, limped all the way up to number 89. And then there was a cover version in 1991 by Inner City that got to number 49. I really like the sort of late disco, early 80s soulful funk sound. I call it Rare Groove. I'm not particularly sure why, because it's not rare. There's loads of it. But I had a compilation that was called Rare Groove, and it was music like this. But it wasn't this particular tune, and I didn't know this one. But as I was writing all this down, it was going straight into my Rare Groove folder. Just really nice early doors music for certain nights. Certain nights where you want to step things back a little bit, put on something that's it's well made. It's solid groove based. It's great as a DJ because it's only a boogie away from disco, but equally in the other direction, it's just a couple of dance moves away from house music. Artists are still making tunes that sound like this to this day. It's had a little bit of a revival recently. Lizzo's About Damn Time, Beyonce's Cuff It could fit either side of this. The songwriting talent on this album, the album that this comes from, is absolutely wild. And I wondered if it was produced by someone like Nile Rodgers or Quincy Jones. But as far as I can work out, Roberta Flack did the production for this herself. And I just think it sounds really great. Donny Hathaway obviously had problems. And the story that this is his last ever recording is absolutely crushing. But I don't think I can think of a much better tribute and to release this i think it's very very nice indeed i look forward to playing it out and this was a really nice discovery to make right so i saw this and i thought i have no idea what this is 
and then listened to it and thought, oh, yeah, I have no idea what this is. And then it dawned on me that there is a black hole in what I know about music for this sort of thing, like there is with, you know, experimental jazz and death metal and stuff. I don't know anything about this. My knowledge of Roberta Flack goes about as far as those three songs that you mentioned, Mike, that sort of everybody knows. I don't think I'd even heard of Donny Hathaway. And I listened to this and thought, I do know this. And then I thought, no, I don't. It just sounds like lots of other things that sound like this that I vaguely know. And I have to say that that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's a perfectly decent soul record, R&B record. I just cannot get on with it at all. I just find it incredibly boring. And I tried to listen to a bit of their albums and I just found that incredibly boring. And I just, I don't know what it sounds like. It's that kind of sort of Luther Vandrossi, uh, Cool and the Gang, Is that does it sound like them? I don't know, a bit. No? No. Yes, I think so. Luther Vandross, yes. Cool and the Gang, no. Okay, so I don't really like the groove of it particularly. It washes over me. It's totally in one ear and out the other. It's the sort of thing that would be maybe in the background in a bar you don't like. This makes it sound like I think it's terrible, and I absolutely don't think it's terrible. I think it's beautifully put together, well-written. Voices are fantastic. Roberta Flack's voice is fantastic. Fear that I was not exposed to any of this as a child, because I don't think it was the sort of stuff that was on in my house. I've only properly come to it probably as a grown-up, so I don't have any kind of innate affinity or like for it because I didn't hear it when I was growing up. So having come across it in later life, I just don't like it. But that's not to say that it isn't any good. It's just a massive hole. And the more I tried to listen to it, the more I thought it's just absolutely not for me. So again, that is very much an opinion about my attitude to it, not on its merit. It very much is for me, and I'll get on to that. But first of all, when I put together the extracts and bonus bits playlists for these episodes, I always like to find either the video of the song or a performance clip of the song, because I only put the audio-only versions on the main YouTube playlist. So I was searching around for a video or a performance clip for Back Together Again. YouTube didn't have any, not even one. I scrolled down a long way. So I thought, a bit weird. I mean, they must have performed it on a TV show at some stage. And then I found out, God, I never knew this, that after Roberta Flatt and Donny Hathaway recorded this song in New York on the 13th of January, 1979, they went back to Roberta's place for dinner together. Donny returned to his hotel. And then later that night, Donny fell to his death from his hotel window. So Back Together Again was one of the last two songs he ever recorded. They recorded them together. The other one was called uh, You Are In My Heaven. And it was released posthumously a year later. Hence, no video, no performance clips. That was the big surprise. But the other surprise for me was to discover that the song was recorded in January 1979. As to my years, it doesn't sound like 1979-era disco at all. But it sounds absolutely in tune with what disco became in 1980, after it suddenly fell from grace in the USA over the summer of 79. So hmm, the dance historians will always tell you that disco basically ended in the summer of 1979 because of the disco demolition night at the baseball stadium in Chicago on July the 12th. 
where hundreds of disco records were blown up on the pitch and a riot ensued. That sent a signal to the US music industry that everyone was sick to death of disco. Almost overnight, radio stations stopped playing it, records stopped becoming hits, everybody moved on to the next thing. Well, that might well be true in the USA, but here in the UK, we never got the memo. Didn't really hear about the disco demolition night unless you read the inside pages of the weekly music press. Disco records continued selling all the way through 1979, the rest of 1979, and right through the whole of 1980. So back together again, only got to number 56 in the States, but it went top three in the UK thanks to club play. And that was mainly in London and the Southeast, where the more soulful and funky end of disco still had a huge fan base. There was another factor at play. Because of strike action, Top of the Pops went off the air for 11 weeks between late May and early August 1980. There was no Top of the Pops. So an awful lot of pop records were denied exposure by what was then the biggest platform in the country to boost record sales. That left a gap, and that gap, and this was commented on at the time by industry observers, that gap was to a large extent filled by records that were being broken in the clubs. So there was a surge of, to my mind, really excellent black dance records in the charts over the summer of 1980. If you look at this week alone, top 20, you've got, these are wonderful records, you've got Behind the Groove, Tina Marie, Let's Get Serious, Jermaine Jackson, Jump to the Beat, Stacey Lattisaw. You Gave Me Love, Crown Heights Fair. Climbing the charts, on the way up, just below them. You've got Use It Up, Wear It Out, Odyssey. And you've got A Lover's Holiday, Change, featuring Luther Vandross. Now, you might not call all of them, quote, unquote, disco now. But you absolutely, definitely would have called all of those disco back then. I've always seen 1980 as disco's silver age. And I've always thought that Back Together Again was a prime example. It's got that comparatively more laid back sound. It's slower. It's less zingy than a lot of the big 78, 79 disco hits. And it's got that smacking percussion on the offbeats, which is one of the big defining features of 1980 disco. Heavenly horns, beautiful vocal interplay, glides, it soars, it's got the lot, just sublime. Classic track. It was Roberta Flack from Bolton as well. I didn't realise. God, they're all in tonight, aren't they? (laughs) She had a house hit in the 90s called, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, look out, here it comes. Right. I feel bad now that it's a classic. Yeah, when disco was done, all the artists weren't done. They wanted to carry on doing stuff. And as you say, it just, it did progress in much the same way as later on dance music would and still does. You know, just things sometimes slow down, sometimes the speed up. So I did think that um, a little bit cool in the gang, some of their stuff, Mike disagreed. But yeah, Luther Vandross and the change stuff that I know is very much that area. Even change was a little bit faster than this, but it's still got that, It's you know, it's a four to the floor. It's dance floor based soul music. Um, yeah. And yeah, you can just draw a line between from disco through this up to house music and then an awful lot of which came later. And I guess I think you could go the other way and go back to the Northern Soul stuff as well on that timeline. I absolutely can see how this might not be for you, Nick, because that's dance music. This was slightly before my time, but, you know, it's a a rich seam to mine when you're going, oh, do you know what? I fancy playing some different tunes. There is so much quality around that era. 
Well, I mean, really, basically, after the 78, 79 disco boom, dance music that was popular in the UK did slow down. It was typically 112 to maybe 118 BPM. Up-tempo dance songs were seriously uncool because the only people still making them were the few really naff, what they called Wally disco acts that were still going. So it was Liquid Gold, Kelly Marie, Lip Sync were bundled in with that, Ossawan, People didn't want anything to do with that. Dance music got slower and slower and slower and slower until house music came along and bumped it right back up again. All right, actually, I've got a question there that you will be able to tell me about probably better than anybody I know. So where in that timeline then does the high energy stuff fit? Ah. Because that's something I can never figure out how it happened. I mean, obviously it was a gay scene, um, but when things in clubs were slowing down, where are all these tunes that were pushing 135? Where did they come from? How did that? Right. The very, very few gay club records that crossed over before High Energy itself crossed over were seen outside of gay clubs as every bit as Napa's Liquid Gold and Kelly Marie. But what happened after disco declined as a mainstream commercial force in the US, it went back to the same subcultures that spawned it, which were gay, black, and Latino, and the music that continued in the black US club culture became really popular in the London, the Southeast, in the UK. The music that went back to the gay subculture formed its equivalent subculture in UK gay clubs. And as UK gay clubs became more numerous, that style of music became more codified and eventually it got to a sort of tipping point where it crossed over commercially. That's where you get high energy. And high energy clearly feeds into house music. Patrick Cowley. Oh, you listen to the Patrick Cowley 15-minute remix of I Feel Love. That invents Acid House totally, I think. Is there something to be said for the involvement of uppers in that as well? Poppers, not uppers, poppers. It was just poppers, was it? It was just poppers. If you listen to the breakdown of high energy records, yeah. they are precision tools for the inhalation of poppers. At the beginning of each breakdown, there might as well be a neon sign saying, take your poppers now. And the breakdowns in high energy records are exactly the length of an amyl nitrate rush. I speak from experience. Chapter 23 there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one day I'll transcribe all this when I do the memoirs. Right, okay, here come. This is It Must Have Been Love by Roxette. It was the second and the biggest of five top ten hits that Roxette had between 1989 and 1993, and it peaked to this position of number three. It was then, like all right now actually, re-released in 1993 when it reached number five. Altogether, Roxette had 17 top 40 hits. They stretched all the way through to 1999. It Must Have Been Love was first released in the band's native Sweden as a Christmas single in 1987, and it had the bracketed subtitle Christmas for the Broken Hearted. Then it was re-released in a slightly altered and slightly reworded version in 1990 as part of the soundtrack to the film Pretty Woman. 
1993 re-release that got us on back of the charts, that was a tie-in with the TV premiere of Pretty Woman. And it must have been loved, massive international hit. It reached number one in the following countries, USA, Canada, Australia, Denmark, Norway, Spain, Switzerland, and Zimbabwe. Nick, we have to start with you on Roxette. I feel that I'm going to get as pent up as excited about this as Trev is in about 10 minutes. So again, anybody who's even passed a vague passing interest in this podcast will know what is coming next. So we were on a family holiday in America in 1989. I was 15, I think, at that time. And the look was massive. It was a number one record in America. Unexpectedly, the, their record company said, oh, we don't think America will like them, so we're not going to release it. And then it's one of those records that found its way there, got played on the radio, everybody loved it. And then it obviously went to number one and was absolutely massive. And so I bought their album, Look Sharp, while I was in America on holiday there and brought it back and then obviously the look was a top 10 hit in the uk and from that point onwards just i mean of that era of that early to mid 90s era they were probably my favorite band one certainly one of the favorite bands i just bought everything i bought all their singles like you say they had loads of singles going across a decade big love crash boom bang fireworks run to you sleeping in my car you know, loads of ones that you've, you uh, not massive hits, but if you heard them, you would probably recognise. And then, of course, there's all the stuff that everybody knows. There's Dangerous and Joyride. I mean, I think it was Joyride that did it for me. I mean, God almighty, I must have played that album twice a day for a, a year, probably. I love Joyride. It's joyful is what it is. I read that they're Sweden's second biggest, most commercially successful act of all time after uh, ABBA, obviously. They were less successful in the UK than they were elsewhere, bizarrely. So if you look at Joyride, got to number four in the UK, but was a number one in Australia, in Canada, in Germany, in America and stuff. So they were actually, I don't know why, slightly less successful here than elsewhere. Maybe we didn't do guitar pop here very much. I don't think it was sort of pre-Britpop, and then maybe Britpop did for them because it was cooler, possibly. But I just think that they are magnificent writers of pop records. Obviously, we lost Marie, very young, um, 2019. She died at 61. Pear, I think, is still around, still going. I mean, he must have made some money, mustn't he? I bet the look is played on American radio all the time. It's funny that I, um, I manage a team of writers in my day job and obviously i check a lot of their work and they're writing articles and blogs and stuff like that and actually it's funny that i i often use a rock setism with them that if they're droning on in an introduction i the title of rock sets greatest hits album is don't bore us get to the chorus <laughs> and that's sort of what i mean when i'm reading somebody's work and going right this is just droning on we need to get to the point here quicker that's the phrase that i will use sort of subconsciously form part of my everyday life bless them pear and marie I absolutely will understand that a lot of people will think they were interminably uncool, right? I I absolutely get this. It was not at the cutting edge of any sort of fashion or genre of that era. Maybe when they first came out very briefly, it was new and clever. I don't think by the time they got to Joyride or Sleeping in My Car, it was particularly clever. Or the theme from the Super Mario Brothers movie which I totally forgot about till I watched that the other day. And then it comes over the closing credits and you're like, God, I forgot Roxette did this, even though I do have the CD single of this. So again, totally uncool, 
I never liked them ironically. I just loved them at the time and still love them. And I've been listening to it nonstop. I found a Spanish language version of it must have been love. The other day I was like, oh, I haven't heard this before. This is great. Just brilliant. Absolutely top draw guitar pop. I would not even say it must have been Love is My Favourite of theirs. Treb was talking about, you know, all right now being on every dad rock anthem ever. It must have been Love has been on every Power Balance album ever released for the last 30 years, I would imagine. It is, again, one of those songs that I think everybody knows. You only have to hear the little drummy bit at the beginning, the and you're like, oh, here we go. It must have been Love. And of course, the other thing at the time was that the way to make big bucks as a musician at that point was to get your song on a soundtrack album they were the big sellers they were the multi-million global selling albums back in the day you know if you managed to get a song on the top gun soundtrack or the dirty dancing soundtrack or something like that so you know go west king of wishful thinking is on the pretty woman soundtrack i bet if you asked peter cox he'd tell you he's made more money from that song than the rest of their stuff put together so i imagine that with the same here that they would have made a ton of money just from its usage and its association with that i've just here all night talking about roxette i should probably stop <laughs> well speaking of being succinct the don't bore us get to the chorus is something i'm really going to try and pay attention to in the future with these things because i think that's just it's a great slogan uh however for the purpose of the remaining three songs i'm looking at my notes and yeah i'm not going to be able to trim these down to anything less than 25 minutes uh but let's crack on with all right now by free i said that i thought it more or less summed up not only dad rock but classic rock and air guitar and was a pretty good representation of 1970s rock in general I think this tune does much the same job for summing up soft rock, power ballads, maybe yacht rock, maybe M.O.R. as well. And it has a pretty good stab at covering hits from the movies too. But this, for me, doesn't sound particularly 90s. Sounds right on the borderline. It sounds very, very definitely between 1985 and 1995, a period where tunes like this came out and... You know, it's not cool, but there was a lot of it and it does a very good job at what it does. It's got one foot in both decades and the video is in an abandoned warehouse. It's blues and greys and off. There's a wind machine and he's got a long coat on. She's wearing mesh. I mean, there perhaps could have been vampires involved in this video. But other than that glaring omission, it's got the lot both of the focal musicians in the video have got absolutely awful haircuts, which makes them even better and brilliant because I've got a real soft spot for awful haircuts. When Mike was talking on earlier on about awful haircuts, I was like, he could have been describing me. Um, <laughs> oh God, I chose my words so carefully there. <laughs> Next time it's raining, go and sit by the window and just watch the droplets of rain run down whilst the cat comes and comforts you listening to this tune and you are living the dream. This is chronically uncool and therefore it is cool. My biggest problem with this week is I'm really starting to worry about picking a most hated tune. So I guess all we can do is see what the next decade has in store for us and see if I hate that one. Uh, but I don't hate this tune. I just think this is very, very nice indeed. Hold your horses a couple of minutes more. I've got opinions. Nick, you know I love you. You know I respect you. 
but I'm going to have to say what I'm going to have to say, aren't I? I'm going to try and say it fairly, but I'm going to start with a digression. So sometime in the early 1980s, when the NME, the New Musical Express, was at its most intellectually rigorous, some would say at its most pretentious, a reader's letter was published, which basically said, come on, you lot, you're overthinking things. There are only two types of record. There are rocking records and there are smoochy records. Well, all there is to it, forget what your music criticism, is it a rocking record or is it a smoochy record? The correspondent probably wasn't being totally serious, but they did have a point. So if we look back at this week's tunes so far, Handyman is a rocking record. All right now is obviously a rocking record. Back together again. Well, that could almost have been a smoochy record, but it's 112 BPM. You can dance to it. So that makes it another rocking record. But Roxette's It Must Have Been Love is undeniably a smoochy record. And for me, it's the worst kind of smoochy record because it's a power ballad. Right, to be brutally honest, I've always preferred rocking records to smoochy records because rocking records are fun and smoochy records, well, they're a bit boring, aren't they? There are, of course, plenty of exceptions. For instance, Roberta Flack, she made two superb smoochy records, the first time I ever saw your face and Killing Me Softly with his song. And... A few episodes ago, I was finally forced to acknowledge that Don't Speak by Noda was actually a superb power ballad. So with that in mind, I was determined to give It Must Have Been Love another chance. But I bloody hated Roxette all the way through the 90s. But then I was still applying cool filters to everything. And Roxette, as Nick already said, they were never ever even slightly cool well the nearest they got to being cool was in late 1994 where on one of their top of the pops appearances their guitarist wore the exact same stripy versace jeans that my partner kevin also owned but then while kevin definitely did look cool in them guitarist from Roxette really didn't that's definitely not a subjective opinion about those jeans, is it at all, Mike? My partner looked really great, but the guy out of the band I don't like didn't. Well, that's uh, objective and impartial. Mm. Stand the love of my life next to the guitarist from Roxette, both wearing the same jeans, and 99% of the population would tell you that Kevin was cooler. Anyway, back to It Must Have Been Love. I've played it loads over the past week and I, i'm beginning to think that don't speak by no doubt might be the only power ballad i genuinely like because it must have been love it just leaves me stone cold the chorus well that's sturdy it's memorable it conveys a simple sentiment about the end of a relationship but those verses don't work for me at all either melodically or linguistically there might be an english or second language factor to this but they have very little coherent meaning and sometimes they don't have any meaning at all that I can discern. I also don't get any genuine sense of emotion from this record. It's styled to sound like a heartbreak song and the vocals on the chorus do their level best to mimic the sound of heartbreak, but I'm still not buying it. The song sounds cold and clinical and calculated as if it's been written to fulfill a brief rather than to express a true feeling. And I have the same problem with a lot of the Scandinavian hits that followed on from Roxette in the 2000s, the Max Martins and the Stargates of this world. Most of them sound precision tooled 
for commercial success, but at the expense of individual character. And I had the same problem with September's Cry For You just a couple of episodes ago. Earlier today, I did play all of Roxette's 10 top 20 hits in chronological order, which is more than I could bring myself to do with Enrique Iglesias last time. It was quite a slog. It started badly. But then I found myself mildly enjoying a couple of the rocking ones. So Dressed for Success, followed by Joyride. Quite enjoyed those. And in general, I did think the hits got better as the 90s progressed. But then again, that might just have been Stockholm Syndrome, which is very appropriate for a Swedish band. You get me? Okay, I've spent a lot of time over the last few days wondering why. I dislike power ballads so much. And you know what? I haven't been able to form any useful conclusions. It's two things. Either I'm hopelessly prejudiced or else power ballads are just objectively bad. Right. Well, power ballads are not objectively bad, right? So that, <laughs> that answers your question for you very easily there. I have to say, watching that, like watching Nick's face as you read that out, was like watching a football fan watching his side go 12 nil down at home. Like, it was just, it started off like, okay, let's see what's, oh, 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 and then the hand went over the mouth and it just went worse and worse. <laughs> I genuinely think that if she was still with us, Marie, God bless her and stuff, they would be the sort of thing that you'd stick on the pyramid at Glastonbury at 12 o'clock lunchtime and people would go mad for it. I genuinely think there would be a re revisiting and a re. Well, these things happen. There's been a reevaluation of Celine Dion, who was thought absolutely beyond the pale by a lot of people in the 90s and is now widely respected. So, yeah. Do we have some sort of homework where we can think of like three power ballads that we could suggest to Mike? Because surely Don't Speak isn't the only power ballad that Mike can think is good. Because, I mean, I, I love a good power ballad. I will freely admit. Quite a lot of that love is, I'm not really into the phrase guilty pleasures, but it is a little bit you're enjoying it ironically because it's just so, it's cheese. So for example, Foreigner, I want to know what love is. I'm not sat there going, oh my God, this is brilliant because I want to know what love is. I'm going, oh, this is just so cheesy. It's wonderful. I'm not artistically stroking my beard and going, hmm, that's wonderful. But it is wonderful and I don't care beyond that. So so can we come up with a, right, next time? It wouldn't be foreigner. I want to know what love is. All right, that's fine. You could argue total clips, the heart, body, time. I kind of think that transcends the power ballad, doesn't it? It's all episodic. It does all sorts of things. No, that's power ballad. I was going to say, uh, it's all coming back to me now. But come no, 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 no. on. What is wrong with you? Total Eclipse, yes, because Total Eclipse, I get an emotion from Total Eclipse. I can connect with Total Eclipse. I can't for the life of me connect with It Must Have Been Love. Love lift us up where we belong. What about that? No. Can't fight this feeling. No. Um, oh, 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 I've had the time of my life. Is that a power ballad? I do yes. like that. Okay, so it wasn't written to order because they were asked to write a song for Pretty Woman didn't have time so used one they'd written already so it wasn't as if they wrote it to order for Pretty Woman so that's not the case at all so I don't subscribe yeah. to that you might be right about the production but that I think that is just the jangly guitar was their signature sound and I think to try and make that into a what is essentially a ballad I think it's probably just the production of it but perhaps it wasn't designed to be a heartbreaking record it was just a pop song 
Does it have to convey terrible emotion to be good? I think if you're going to write a song with a very memorable chorus that goes, it must have been love, but it's over now, you are trying to connect with the listener. Kind of an interesting thing, because, you know, where I put this at the time, this would be one of the last three songs at the Youth Club Disco. So it was the smoochy kiss romance because it's not about, oh, I love you so much and I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. It's like, oh, man, it's over, bugger. So yeah, it's quite an interesting paradox, really. I would put this in the erection section, we'd call it. But then it's sad, isn't it? But then, it, I mean, you know, the greatest erection section of song of all time is, for me, Careless Whispers by Ram. And that's about things going amiss as well, isn't it? So, but Careless Whispers by Wham. Is that a power no, ballad? No, but I don't like it much. I don't actually like Careless Whisper very much. I never have. I like Careless, right. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Right. I think the verses are really dirty and unmemorable. Um, the first smooch I ever had at a disco with a girl, she did already know I was gay. She was the first person I ever came out to at university. But I had a slow dance with her. And it was Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime by the Corgis. I learnt and then I forgot. That's not a power ballad either. It's a smoochy song. We digress. Shall we agree to disagree? We have been talking about this song for three days, so don't bore us. Get to the noise. <laughs> Let's get on to the rocking decade that is... The This, my friends, is Sandstorm by Darude. It was the first and biggest of three hits for Darude. It peaked to this position at number three. He reached number five later in 2000 with Feel the Beat. And then in 2001, he got to number 13 with Out of Control Brackets Back for More. But he didn't come back for more because that was that in the UK charts. Darud is the stage name for a Finnish producer called Tony Ville Hendrik Virtanen. And in 2019, Darud represented Finland at Eurovision with the song Look Away. However, Look Away placed last in its semi-final and so failed to qualify for the final. Trev, get started. I guess first things first, if your name is Tony Virakalda, why would you have a stage name? Uh, you've already got the perfect name. But uh, the first time dance music achieved perfection was two unlimited. get ready for this. Avicii's Levels was, I think, the most recent. The other time in between these two was this tune. I could name what I think are great dance tracks forever, but it's the ones that cross over in such a way as to become like the old equivalent of a meme, the ones that peak any party aren't actually all that copious. The only time you could play this tune is at the peak. You're not warming up to this. It's not end of the night stuff. This is the absolute zenith of Unite. And there ain't actually that many dance tracks that do that. As I suspect you already know, I adore this tune. When a tune breaks and is the tune, when it's the one that everybody wants to hear, and you can just play it as a DJ and stop and take in the atmosphere that the tune's making. It's not you the DJ's making. It's not the lighting. It's not the venue. It's just that tune at that point in time that's why I DJ. And this is one of the ones that I can absolutely fully remember. Jimmy's Nightclub, Wednesdays, there was plaster dropping off the ceiling. 
sweat or possibly other fluids running down the walls. Your trainers are sticking to the floor. There's flies in your, your beer. It's free entry for women. There's a queue around the corner at 10.15 and at around about 12.30, this tune, this tune. They never ruin this with a vocal, which is something that happens quite a lot in dance music, house music, trance music as well. Uh, and there's loads of tunes that they added a vocal to that I actually prefer with a vocal. Equally, I know loads of people find those versions really awful. They just never did it with this. There wasn't a radio version where it had a woman saying sandstorm over the top of it or some nonsense. It was just this. It's a banging Neo Records tune that is right in the sweet spot between trance and hard house. The bass line kind of motivates you along. It's really surging when you actually listen to the individual bits of it and try and sort of piece it together. The bass line is a real, ooh, yeah, whomping along. The top end has, yeah, waving your hands around in the air like an idiot. And when, and I think this is really important to clarify, this is a euphoric tune. For me, when this came out, I was not taking drugs, but the effect I don't think was far off. It's that type of energy. So much of dance music is drug music, take away drugs. You've got a huge section of dance music that just simply wouldn't exist because I don't think it's good enough. But I think this is good enough. You don't need to be off your nut for this. I'm quite sure for loads of people, this won't make any sense whatsoever. And I think that's probably because you've never been there in that moment. That's just unfortunate. There's not much you can do about that. But I think if you have been there to whatever tune, you know, there's loads of dance music that does this. But in that moment, hands in the air, you, you call it reach for the lasers, whatever you want. <laughs> it's a firm. Oh, yeah, for me. I just, yeah, I'm kind of keen on this song. <laughs> <laughs> Trev, you have said almost exactly what I wanted to say about Sandstorm. I, I very, very hard agree to just about everything you said there. Yeah, picking up on your point about it doesn't add cheesy vocals to the radio edit. It's a curious thing with Sandstorm because I always think, as general rule of thumb, most dance tunes work better in their full-length versions, but the radio edit of Sandstorm perfectly formed it condenses everything you need into three minutes and 45 seconds and it has a beginning and an end which you don't even need to beat mix you can just use the intro as a hard reset after whatever you've played before it and i find at the end actually i find it's best to play something completely different at my nights after it because your dancers have just been on this amazing exhilarating journey they need to catch their breasts for a minute we haven't got anything else that's like Sandstorm we're going to follow it with. At least this is the case in the bar environment, where it's where I mostly play. And it's actually all too easy to lose your floor after Sandstorm at my nights anyway. If you follow it with the wrong track, people will decide that what they actually need is a rest. And so you have to stop them drifting away. And for me, I find it's best to play something with a slow intro. So I'll usually follow Sandstorm with Queen, Don't Stop Me Now, or Proud Mary, I Can Tina Turner, the original version. When I restarted my Friday night residency after COVID, that's when I started expanding my repertoire beyond the 70s, 80s disco soul funk that my night had been known for. But I needed to do it gradually. And so the first couple of times I played Sandstorm didn't really work. People were not yet expecting something quite so full on and it just threw them. Since then, 
Sandstorm has become one of my absolute top rated, most surefire floor fillers. I usually get cheers when the intro starts and people realise what's coming up. I always get absolute mayhem when the main track kicks in and then even more mayhem as the drop builds back up and the track just explodes all over again. I so agree with you, Trev. It, you don't need to do anything while three minutes and 45 seconds of Sandstorm is playing other than just stand back and just look at what it has done to the people in the room who all of a sudden are having the night of their lives. It's a wonderful thing to witness. If Avicii's Levels is the only EDM track you actually need, according to me, and if No Doubts Don't Speak is the only power ballad you need, then Darude Sandstorm is perhaps the only Ibiza trance tune you need. Maybe you'll still think it's horrible, borderline, terrifying racket, but most people don't, whatever they may think about Ibiza trance. Total classic track. Utterly thrilling, start to finish, never get tired of it, and I hope I never will. Nick, are you with us? Right. So, um, I mean, obviously, I first came to this playing League of Legends on Twitch. Um, no, I, I, of course I didn't. Um, <laughs> I just read that today that that was a thing. Um, so... I don't even know where to start with this. I'm going to answer a few of the points you mentioned. Talk about there's no vocal on it, that it's just an instrumental. But hilariously, if you if you Google it, there are lyrics online, which are brilliant. It just says beep, 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 a lot, which is absolutely hilarious. If you YouTube it, you can also find a fella playing it on a toy trumpet, which absolutely wet myself laughing at that earlier. It is phenomenally hilarious. And in 2016, Darude admitted he'd never been in a sandstorm. <laughs> it's actually a work of genius because he's writing about something he's never personally experienced. I don't like this sort of trance dance beat the music, generally speaking. It's not really my bag. I went through a phase of buying all of the Ministry of Sound chill-out albums. I think I quite like that sort of, you know, have it on in the garden on a sunny day in the background kind of thing. So I like all of that, but I'm not really a fan of this sort of thing. Saying all that, I mean, Christ almighty, Sandstorm is a banger, isn't it? I mean, God almighty. And I was trying to work out today why I like it. And then I realised I do like trance music because I like chicane. And then it only dawned on me that they were broadly the same genre. And I bought loads of chicane stuff. I really like that. Again, I've no idea why. I think it's quite melodic chicane, isn't it? And some of that is poppy. So... I can't really add anything from any meaning because I've never dropped it at 12.30 in a nightclub full of thousands of people. I've only played it in my living room. But if it came on while I was out and about, you know, after a few in a pub or something, you would go mental. And rightly so. It is an absolutely brilliant song. I didn't know it was part of this um, long-running internet meme. I had absolutely no idea about it. And to the extent that YouTube did an April Fool's Day prank, where if you search for anything on YouTube on April 1st, 2015 this was, um, you get a message, did you mean Darude Sandstorm by Darude for every search? And it added a button that you could play Darude Sandstorm over whatever video you were watching as well. So, I mean, that's how big a meme it was. Totally passed me by. You were talking about it, you don't have to be on drugs to listen to it. I had a colleague of mine randomly the other day, a younger colleague of mine, said to me, what are you listening to at the moment? I was listening to this because I was listening to the songs on the playlist. I said, oh, I'm listening to Sandstorm by Darude. And she was like, what? 
I was like, you must know this. And so I sent her the YouTube link and she started playing it. She went, oh, I know what this is. And about 30 seconds later, she messaged me. She went, it feels like I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> and I was like, well, it, it probably, maybe that's what it feels like. I don't know. Yeah. Nick, you, as a Nottingham citizen, can you confirm this, that at Nottingham Forest plays Sandstorm before the start of the second half during all its home games? I cannot confirm nor deny that, no. Oh, oh no, well, they're just up the road. So next time they're playing, I'll open a window at half-time and see if I can hear it. It is interesting what you say about how you follow it, because there aren't many tunes in the world that are, oh, what do you follow? You know, even Brightside, there's plenty of tunes you can follow Mr Brightside with. One that I struggle to follow is another one of my top tier tunes, Queen Bohemian Rhapsody. What do you follow that with? Because Jesus Christ, you've just played Queen Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. And as as I get older as a DJ, it is now more bars that I work in the nightclubs. And yeah, that, oh, is there any further you can go? Bearing in mind, I've got way harder records than this, but not that I would play out particularly often. It is one of those tracks where you do have to think Am I happy with this being the peak of the night? Because afterwards, what are you going to do? Stick on Underworld, Born Slippy or something like that. Yeah, it would be too much, wouldn't it? It is a last 20 minutes of the night kind of tune for me. That's why I can follow it with Queen's Don't Stop Me Now or I Can Tell Turner's Proud Mary because they also bring mayhem, but not for a minute or two and in a totally different way. So it's like another reset. Can you not come out of Bohemian Rhapsody into Sandstorm? Right, so I did a bootleg of Darude Sandstorm where, and I didn't change it, I didn't put a vocal over it, like a singing vocal, but for the drop... I put the human traffic. Come on, the weekend has landed. It's a 30-second sort of soliloquy because that drop is it's almost a silent drop. It before the was come back in. I've dropped in a vocal sample just as the um, drop finally crescendos and explodes. It's that Martin Luther King, free at last, free at last. Great God Almighty, we're free at last. Time that right. That's nice. You know what you need to do, Mike? You need to wait for the drop in Sansom. Just as it's coming back up, you need to go classic track and then (laughs) (laughs) the exact moment that i realized that certain types of current student djs were not to my taste and i would stop going out to student type bars was a bar where they played the breakdown of sandstorm and when it got to the top they put on something else oh sacrilege awful Shall we move on? From the sublime to... And it's England who are stepping out now for this huge challenge ahead. The nation is watching. This is Shout by Shout for England featuring Dizzy Rascal and James Corbin. Shout was originally a number four hit for Tears of Fears in 1984. This version of Shout was an unofficial anthem for the England World Cup squad in 2010. And it spent two weeks at number one. It also contained extracts from Blackstreet's No Diggity. And No Diggity, in turn, sampled Grandma's Hands by Bill Withers. So consequently, this single boasts no fewer than 12 co-writers, including Bill Withers. As a solo artist, Dizzy Rascal had four other number ones before Shout and no further number ones after Shout. He'd already topped the charts with Dirty Disco earlier in the same month and there was only a week's gap 
between Dirty Disco dropping off number one and Shout getting to number one. As for James Corden, he only released one more single in the UK five years later. It was a cover of Yazoo's Only You. It was performed as a duet with Kylie Minogue and it peaked at number 155. Right, so let's finish a great episode full of great tunes with a terrible cover version by a convicted felon and the least talented man in British showbiz. <laughs> now, I love an England football song, right? We'll start with a quick whistle-stop tour. So, started in 1970, Back Home, absolute classic, written by Bill Martin, Phil Coulter, who wrote Congratulations and Puppet on a String. So that's an absolute belter. Then there was a gap, and then they came back in 1982. This time we'll get it right. Reached number two. In 1982, and this was in the days of Brian Robson and the full squad singing the song in a recording studio. 1986, we've got the whole world at our feet. Number 66, that reached. Then, of course, England international football songs moved into the modern era with World in Motion. And that's when football songs started becoming pop songs that you could take out of football and still made sense as a pop song, almost. Uh, World in Motion was number one. Then, obviously, we didn't qualify for the World Cup in 1994. 1998, they re-released Three Lions. Then 2002, Anton Deck's We're on the Ball reached number three, entirely forgettable. Uh, 2006, Embraces World at Your Feet. What a belter that was. And then we've got Shout, Shout for England by Dizzy Rascal and James Corden. And essentially, it's so bad, it put paid to England recording a World Cup song because we haven't actually released one since there was a sort of weird one in 2014 by Take That, but it wasn't officially released. So essentially, well done, Dizzy. Well done, James. You essentially put a stop to 40 years of, you know, nice football, pop-related novelty football anthems. So well done. Well done to you two. I, as I've mentioned before on this, have a Friday afternoon playlist at work where we curate a theme and all this sort of thing. And I also have a band list of people that I never put on the playlist because you don't want to risk offending anybody. And Dizzy Rascal is now on that list, obviously, having been convicted of domestic violence and lost his appeal and had to be tagged and stuff. So he's a wrong one and doesn't go on the list. James Corden, you know, when you have kids little kids, and you teach them that they dream big, they can be whatever they want to be, James Corden is the living proof that that is true, right? That you can get to being extraordinarily successful despite having not an iota of talent whatsoever. So he is living proof to all children that if you dream big, come on, kids, you can be whatever you want to be. That is true, right? And there is the living proof of that. Um, Also, why are they singing Tears for Fears Shout, which is essentially a song about political protest, Right. They've picked it because it's got the word shouting. And when you're at a football match, you might shout. I mean, they might as well have covered an obscure song called Have a Bovril at Half Time or, you know, throw a piss in the back pocket of the person in front of you. It doesn't actually even make any sense, even in the context of a football song. The rapping on it is terrible. You know, they're just talking about Rio Ferdinand and stuff. It's awful. I don't actually really know what James Corden's contribution to it is particularly, which is probably for the best, really. So I don't really like it. And it's because it's they've ruined a great song. I don't like Dizzy Rascal, and he's obviously a wrong one. I don't like James Corden. They've killed the England football novelty song Stone Dead, and we haven't had one since. And it's a terrible record. So other than that, well done, everyone. You've just ruined it for everyone. 
Didn't we have Joel Corey's Lionheart last year? There were two mixes, but one mix of Lionheart was a World Cup mix with, oh, I don't know, commentary samples on or something. It didn't do that well, though. It's not an official song. It's like Vindaloo. That was never an official England football oh. song, you know. Neither was Shout for England. That was unofficial. Yeah. The only positive thing you can say about it is it raised some money for Great Ormond Street Hospital. So let's give them that credit. Though I said I wasn't looking forward to picking a most hated tune this week, but you do have to have one. And with the tunes that we've had so far, there really was a mountain to climb for this one. And I've written here, oh, this is going to be brutal. But comparatively to what Nick's just said, this is going to read like a positive review. <laughs> so it is really fashionable to hate James Corden. And I don't particularly get why. I think he's all right. Don't get me wrong. I don't think he's a genius, but I think there's lots of really famous people who aren't geniuses and I find him relatively harmless. This tune, I do think it is a bit of a mess, but I don't hate the idea as a concept. So it's got a rap by, at the time, arguably the UK's best MC. I was in a Dizzy Rascal at the time. He, he did go off the boil when he started doing a bit too much stuff with Calvin Harris. I've got a lot of time for Calvin Harris, but obviously what's come after is more challenging to deal with. So I'm, I'm not really going to touch on that, if I'm honest. I'm going to coward out there. But the Blackstreet stab is all right, actually, in the context of this tune. The don't kind of works. And I don't think it ruins Tears for Fear's Shout. Tears for Fear's Shout is such a good song that this version of it doesn't ruin it, just like the Disturbed new metal version of it doesn't ruin it either. And the Disturbed version of Shout is much better than this. The one thing that I really am with Nikon is why. Why have they used that chorus? If you're going Shout, Shout, I, whilst Nick was ranting, I was like, actually, I bet I can write better lyrics. Shout, Shout, go to the park and have a kick about. It's suddenly about football. Like, if you use the hook, shout, shout, and then just change it, why? These are the things I could do without. Makes no sense whatsoever. It just feels lazy and a tapping to at least give it some kind of football context. But pop is often disposable, and conveniently then we can just forget about this. There's some great... We're on the ball that you said passed you by. I think we're on the ball. It's a really good football pop record. It's got that awful novelty bit in it where they're talking oh what do you think of this record then the mel and kim christmas tune had that in you know that should never be in pop music but yeah obviously three lions is great i think vindaloo's a great tune world motion back home's a good one in the broader world you've got carnival de paris by dario g is an absolute monster of a football tune i don't think this had to be as far away from a success as it was if they'd have just come up with something better with the chorus it might be okay i actually was djing on a rooftop car park just after lockdown before the england games and i played this but i played it as a novelty compared to the classic tunes before football again this makes sort of sense and then you've just got the classics that you can play and then you just stick on oasis because screw it i don't actually think this is as bad as nick I don't think it's an own goal, but to give you a football comparison, I think it's scoring a penalty that should never have been given in the first place. I don't really know why this exists, but it did raise money. I've got nothing against James Corden whatsoever. Dizzy Rascal is a much more difficult person to deal with at the moment. 
can he do his time and come back? Can he make amends somehow? I just don't know. In the world of fallen pop stars, he's not written off forever, is he? That's kind of the nicest thing I can say about him, maybe. He's just announced a massive arena tour. So I mean, Chris Brown yeah, I was gonna say. is bigger. You know, if anything, it's done his career favours, which I think is an absolute travesty. I think Dizzy Rascal's response to it was very, very poor indeed, compounding the matter. You've been found out as doing something awful. Own it and apologise instead of chucking a bit of a tantrum about it. But Chris Brown got his crime tattooed on his arm. Yeah, as you say, he's doing an arena tour. It's murky waters at best, isn't it? So let's move on, shall we? I want to hear what Mike's got to say about this song. I really do. I hope Mike loves it. (laughs) I'm trying to judge Shout as a football record because the England World Cup squads back home wasn't just the first England World Cup record. It was the first football hit. And there have been just so many football hits after that, not just from World Cup squads, but from individual teams and all sorts. So I'm trying to judge it in the context, within the canon of British football records. And as a football record, well, that fulfills its brief better than most, I think. It's it's not New Order's world in motion, but that's in a class of its own. Certainly a lot less irritating than Ali's Tartan Army by Andy Cameron or Ozzy's Dream by Tottenham Hotspur featuring Chas and Dave, to name just two. I think that mashing up Tears of Fear Shout with Black Street's No Diggity was a good idea. I think the tracks mashed together well. They've kept the same 98 BPM tempo as the Tears of Fear's original. They've speeded up No Diggity from 89 up to 98. It does leave me wondering whether I could mix those two originals together at some stage. I need to see whether that works. I think there's an urgency and a drama to the track. And leaving aside Dizzy Rascal's heinous crimes, just confine myself to this record. I like the way that he actually sounds quite exasperated and pissed off. And this, this line's like, pull your socks up, pull your finger out, set aside your ego, we're tired of bragging about 40-odd years ago. I think that kind of expresses the frustration that a lot of England fans have felt over the years. It's not, yay, we're going to win. It's more like, for Christ's sake, can you make a bit more effort this time? I like that. I I will defend using the lyrics of the Tears of Fears song, if I may. Shout, shout, let it all out. Right, let out your frustration that England never bloody win the World Cup. These are the things I could do without. We could do without England never winning the World Cup. We want to try a bit harder. Then it goes, come on. I'm talking to you. Come on. That is exactly what Dizzy Rascal's verses are doing. I think it lyrically, it is totally justified. Hard disagree with both of you there. Yeah, it does have James Corden in it. He's not for everyone. Although I do think he has talent because I thought he was excellent in the History Boys. I thought he was excellent in Gavin and Stacey. And then unfortunately, he kind of became the character in Gavin and Stacey professionally and it got quite irritating. But on the whole, I can live with this record without howling in pain, which is more than I can say for Badil, Skinner and the Lightning Seeds. Mic drop. Now, whoa, whoa. So I was on board with you until that last sentence. What the hell was that? I used to work with someone who sang that bloody song all day, every day, right through the summer. And he knew it irritated me. And he did it all the more. Music is subjective, Trev. Was he in Brody you worked with? Um... (laughs) 
Yeah, I was sort of coming round to you. You know, I was like, that's an interesting argument, Mike. I don't necessarily agree, but I totally take your point until that last bit, and now I just think you're talking out your ass. Um, <laughs> one thing I will give you is that the reason Three Lions is so great is because it does the same thing. It is not we're going to win. It is we are terrible. But maybe, maybe just this time, maybe the one. And that's why it works. Yeah, and this just ramps it up another notch. It's it's quite a nice development, isn't it, from three lines? I think you are reaching a little bit for the, you know, let it all out. I think you want to find a meaning. It is the meaning. Watch it on the video. It is the meaning. I still just think it would just a bit lazy. Just change the lyrics. Write another chorus. Dizzy Rascal is capable of writing choruses. It just felt a bit rushed. Don't get me wrong, I, I don't love James Corden. He can't, he passes me by. I don't understand the level of hatred that some people have for him. Because he clings on to this, I'm just the regular guy next door sort of persona when he's like, a, he's been a massive US TV star. And that kind of doesn't ring true. And then he kind of looks pleased with himself and he assumes you're all part of his gang. It's, it's the same problem that you started to get with Chris Evans as TFI Friday went on. Yeah. But also, I mean, you have to hate him. Just, uh, yeah, it's not for me. It covers it. But there are people with real vitriol. Yeah. Oh, I just want to choke him to death. Why? You know, some of it's a bit easy, but whatever. He ruins a lot of things he's in. Ocean's 8 is a perfectly fine heist remake, blah, blah, blah. And then near the end, James Corden turns up and just ruins him. Oh, oh, oh. Right. Early in lockdown, they started doing live streams Oh, well, that couldn't have been live streams, what we're saying. They started showing performances from the National Theatre. Actually, there may have been live streams. Anyway, detail. There was a comedy, I forget the title, James Corden starred in it, and he was hilarious, genuinely brilliant. One man, two governors. But I went nowhere near it because it's got James Corden in it. You should. In the same reason I've no, I didn't go and see Peter Rabbit. It's got him in it. So I know I'm not going to like it because he's just going to wind me up and he's just going to ruin it. Yeah, I know you're missing out. The way he riffs off the audience is absolutely brilliant. Watch it. I do think a lot of people get wound up and say that he's absolutely talentless. If he's absolutely talentless, then that in itself is a talent because he's doing all right with it. Yeah, it might be a bit mundane and it might be a bit obvious and stuff like that, but that's a skill. It's like saying, oh, dance music. Anybody could make that. Go on then. Yeah, I mean, it's the five-year-old child could paint that syndrome, isn't it? Yeah. I've done the disservice of missing out the official England World Cup song from 1998, which was Ian McCulloch and and the Bunny Men and the Spice Girls, How Does It Feel to Be on Top of the World? I would urge you to revisit We're on the Ball. Give that another go. Do you know who's the only club football team to have had a number one record in the UK? Liverpool with Anfield Rap. No, it's Man United. Glory, glory, Man United. It was Manchester United. Come on, you Reds. Well, guys, we could talk all night, but we have some voting to do. Uh, Nick, can I have your votes first of all, please? Yes, you can. Thank you. Uh, minus one point for the 2010s, please. That was a very easy decision. No, thank you. In the zone, I would like to put superhero Jimmy Jones and his handyman. By day, he's a carpenter. By night, he's a caped, sexual, handy person. Um, and I will also put Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway, is that his name, in the mayor's zone as well. Thank you, Tarth, the 1980s. Uh, one point to the 1970s for free. And all right now, just because it is a classic rock anthem. Two points to the 2000s. Let's go for Sandstorm by Darude. Even though he's never been in a sandstorm, let's go with that. 
if I shut my eyes, I can feel like what it might look like. And sorry, Mike, three points, maximum points, the 1990s for Roxette. And if Roxette ever pop up again, they're getting three points next time. I think I say this every week. So, oh, it's a really tough week this week. Well, the reason this week is really tough is that we've got three tracks that for me are absolute 10 out of 10 all-time solid gold classics. And we've got three tracks which for me are basically met. It was hard enough working out the top three. It was even harder working out which one to put last. It was going to be Shout for England, but I think there are some enough elements of Shout for England that work on its own terms for it to get into the Met. So I'm sorry, Nick, I'm going to give the minus one to Roxette. I'm trying to be objective. I really am. It just does not work for me at all. Shout for England gets in the Met zone. Jimmy Jones also gets in the Met zone. So we go on to the three solid old classic tracks. I'm putting Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway, although it breaks my heart. They're getting the one point. Three, all right now, are getting the two points. It has to be Darude Sandstorm for the three points because that is the one that gives me the most intensely pleasurable response of all of them. And it is so tied in to what I do on Friday nights as well. And I do what I love every Friday night. So this is the absolute embodiment of what I love doing. Got to get the three points for Darude. Trev. A really easy one for the worst. It's shout. It was lazy. Third, I've got Roberta Flack. Second, I'm going free. I really do think it's a great song of the weeks that would have romped home. But you don't have to ask what's number one. Darude Sandstorm is in my top 10 of all time, I think. Uh, yeah, in last place currently, shout for England. Fifth place, with the very essence of meh, because nobody gave it any votes at all. It's got it's currently zero points. Fifth position, Jimmy Jones for the 60s. Then we got third equal. We've got a tie between Roberta Flatt and Donny Hathaway and Roxette. Second place, we've got three all right now. And first place, current leader, Eight points out of a maximum nine is the rude sandstorm. This is where we throw things over to you, our listeners. What we need you to do, as always, is to specify your first, your second and your third favourite songs in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated or your least favourite. If you'd like to make some additional comments, that's absolutely great. We'll read some of them out in the next Express Bulletin, but you don't have to. Votes on their own are just as good and very, very welcome. Our favourite way to vote is via our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. Well, we would say that, wouldn't we? Because it costs you money to join. But if you do stump up £3 a month, the price of a latte at current rates, you get to help us recoup some of the considerable costs of running this podcast. And you get email alerts with every new episode that we put up. Saves you wading through the quagmire of Twitter. You've got password protected comments. And um, when I think of some more extra juicy bits to go to the Patreon, I will add those as well in the fullness of time. You can also vote via Twitter, as many people do. That's at which decade tops. You can email us. That's which decade is tops at gmail.com. Or you can search for us on Facebook. Search for Which Decade Is Tops and Potless. It'll take to the Facebook page, leave a comment, send an art message. Loads of different ways of voting. Your deadline this time, 6pm UK time, Tuesday, July the 11th. Right, so it is goodbye from Mr Nick Parkhouse. You know our relationship, Mike, it must have been love, but it's over now. <laughs> it's goodbye from DJ Trail. 
So are. It's goodbye for me. Thank you for enjoying these six classic tracks. See you next time. Which decade is Tops for Pops? I'm going to get straight off and eat.